Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Hey, Tothy. Today, we're going to be addressing several important topics. We are looking at hiring strategies for physicians and improving workplace culture. Right. And you are speaking with leadership expert and national thought leader, Dr. Patty Fay. Who that I am. I think our audience will pick up some very useful tips from Dr. Fay. But before we move into her interview, we need to do word of the show. Ah, da, da, da. Okay. Here is our word. Ready? Panjandrum. Don't you love the sound of that? Panjandrum is a person who has or claims to have a great deal of authority or influence. Panjandrum. Ooh, great word. I like that one. <laughs> Thanks, Tothi. With that, let's just move straight into our interview with Dr. Fay. I would like to welcome Dr. Patty Fay to Sound Practice. Dr. Fay owns Fay Consulting, a leadership consulting firm, and she's a former healthcare executive and board certified internist. Patty's primary motivation is to create healthy cultures that allow people to do their best work on behalf of patients. She works with leadership teams to improve their internal communications and her firm creates and delivers leadership development programs aimed at increasing the reservoir of excellent physician leaders. Dr. Fay also works with physicians as a certified executive coach, and she is the host of License to Lead podcast, which is an exceptional podcast, and I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Patty Fay to Sound Practice. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for inviting me. It is absolutely my pleasure, and I'm excited about our discussion today because it is directly on point for the American Association for Physician Leadership, and let's jump right in. Tell me, how did you become interested in the, in the topic of physician leadership? Yes, well, my interest in leadership really got stirred up a few years into my career as an internist in a big healthcare system because I got pretty disillusioned with the leadership of the organization. They were under a lot of performance and financial pressure and the changes that they were making had negative, negative effects on physician practices. And I saw great docs uh, leaving the organization. Uh, and just one example of what I would call a crazy making decision that affected pretty much everyone negatively was that, for instance, my medical assistant, who was wonderful, uh, would disappear at 5 p.m. every day. I'd still have patients to see, and there'd be all that end of the day, you know, messages and labs and callbacks that we needed to do. Uh, but the medical assistants did not report to the physicians, so she didn't report to me. She reported uh, to an administrator, and the administrator was evaluated, um, you know, based on staying under budget. So uh, overtime was... Uh, really forbidden. And uh, so the situation wasn't good for anyone. And I can remember, you know, thinking, you know, who would set their professional practice up this way? And one of the real precipitating events that 
got me interested in leadership and really thinking about getting involved in leadership was the day that a terrific internist, and it, he was somebody that I had helped to recruit, he popped into my office and told me that he had resigned. And I'm sure I tried to talk him out of it. And he was almost incredulous. And I remember him asking me, Patty, why are you sticking around? He thought it had gotten you know so toxic with all the financial pressure in the organization. And that conversation triggered my decision to get involved in leadership. And I decided to run for the board of directors. I figured I had nothing to lose. I could jump ship later if I couldn't make a difference. And I got, uh, I got elected to the board. And while I was on the board, it became clear to me that it really was possible to make changes and to make things better in the organization. So I found it to be really exciting to be able to influence decisions and, uh, and to see that leadership work uh, translate into a better work environment uh, for everybody. And then after that, I was asked to join the leadership team and uh, to create a strategic HR department uh, for this large physician group. At that point, we had, I think, over 500 docs, 500 physicians at that point. And I absolutely loved the role. I loved my excellent colleagues on the leadership team. And we were able to see huge changes in the organization. So in physician satisfaction and uh, in the quality and in the financial outcomes, and so that's really when it became clear to me that the culture of the organization is created at the top by leadership, and in this case, by physician leadership. What a great way to um, arrive at a topic of, of your interest by actually something that is so, so oftentimes people try and, and, and it doesn't necessarily work out the first go around. So I'm glad that you were encouraged and you could make a, make a tremendous uh, difference. Now, now, Michael, it might not necessarily have been my very first go around. I know I had taken on a chief role and I had been, you know, working up to uh, having more and more of an interest in it. So I wouldn't want to make it look like it was a slam dunk, you know, getting on the board, getting on the executive team. Uh, there were uh, uh, some steps in there that I glossed over. Well, that's important too for the audience, right? That, that mm -hmm. success doesn't always come instantaneously and mm -hmm. there needs to be some experience um, and assistance with by professionals like you to help people succeed in the in the long run, right? Right, right. You have an exceptional website and in the show notes, we're going to put a, a link to it. But as I was preparing for our time uh, together, uh, Patty, I was intrigued by a statement on your website. And here, here it is, uh, the work lives and the discretionary effort of the fine human beings around you will determine your outcomes. Can you talk a little bit more about this? I think that that's a very interesting and important idea. Yes, and thank you for that really nice comments about um, my website. Um, but yes, I'd love to expand on this. Uh, so in any kind of business, when people love their work, and love their workplace, they'll go over the top, whether it's for patients or customers or for their colleagues. And this is what creates great outcomes. Uh, when I was in the leadership role that I just mentioned, I loved that team and I loved the work and the results we were getting. It was totally energizing. And if people love their work life, and then if they're also committed to getting their organization to be successful, they will give a lot of discretionary effort. And that just means that they'll, they're willing to go above and beyond what's uh, required 
in the workplace. And so when you've got great people or fine people giving a lot of discretionary effort at work, the organization is going to have outstanding results. The results come from the people of the organization. And I, I really, I love to emphasize that the greatest gift I can give to a high performer is the opportunity to work alongside other high performers. So when we create this work environment that excellent people love, everything just clicks into place. Morale goes up and turnover goes down and great people want to come to your team or to your organization. Customers and patients are more satisfied. And there's plenty of data, especially from the Gallup company about the business outcomes associated with a highly engaged culture. And my interpretation of what happens with high engagement is that you end up getting this array of hugely advantageous conditions. So people will cough up discretionary effort, but that's not all. They'll also tell their friends and their family, come here for your healthcare. And they'll tell their excellent physician friends, you know, come here and work. And when people have a positive mindset, then they're able to think more clearly and work more effectively, they're more innovative. And I think the other condition that's created is that the organization is no longer a refuge for low performers. So low Mm. performers tend to get pretty conspicuous and they'll either uh, leave voluntarily or uh, ultimately they'll be uh, forced to either improve, which is optimal, or they'll be removed. I mean, I think I could probably come up with another half a dozen of these sorts of salutary conditions that just continue to build and build uh, better outcomes when high performers are giving discretionary effort. I mean, like recruiting is easier, selection gets more you know, selective, the reputation in the community gets better. And, and I think this is especially important in healthcare and among physicians, leadership roles are actually sought after by the best of the best. It's no longer that, you know, going to the dark side. So uh, a great organizational culture uh, is the ultimate virtuous cycle. Uh, so, so that's what I was referring to on my website. The, the fine humans around us who give discretionary effort create these outstanding results for the organization. Well said, but I've got, I've got to I've got to ask yeah. because I hear this from a lot of people, right? That it is very difficult to to change an organization's culture, um, and I would imagine the larger the organization, the more difficult it is to to change. Do you agree with that? Is it difficult, as so many people tell me, to change? Our well, culture? I have a, a mantra that captures the biggest leverage points for changing organizational culture. And my mantra is who we choose, who we choose to lead and who we choose to leave. So it's, you know, who we allow into the organization, who gets to, you know, put on the company Jersey, who we ask to be leaders and who we discipline or ask to leave. And of these three, the most important by far is who we choose to lead because they make all the decisions about the other two. The leader decides the approach to selection and performance management. So in this way, the leaders create the culture and the leaders are in the position to change the culture. The CEO holds all the cards and the CEO gets to choose their leadership team. And then that team cascades the culture through the organization. 
so if the CEO and the rest of the leadership team have a deep understanding of the core business, and if they're committed, for instance, in healthcare, if they're committed to excellent patient care, then that can be a solid foundation for making change and for creating an excellent culture. But if the CEO, you know, brings his buddies onto the leadership team and makes the chief financial officer his heir apparent and seems to be mostly committed to making sure that the PR is flattering and that the numbers look good, then that sort of finances first self-serving mindset is going to permeate the whole organization. And in that case, the ability to change the organizational culture, at least in a positive direction, will be very difficult. So it can be energizing to create a great organizational culture. But in healthcare, I do think it's an uphill battle if the CEO and the C-suite have uh, a business school mindset. I call it the BSM uh, that prioritizes profits over patients. So it, to me, it's one of the big reasons that it's critical for physicians to be in leadership positions. And on the subject of physician leadership, uh, I like to point out that um, medicine is one of the five traditional professions. So I talk about them in alphabetical order, but architecture, clergy, engineering, law, and medicine. And, and among the five so-called traditional professions, medicine is the exception in that physicians don't lead the institutions where we practice. So, you know, in your field, Michael, in law, lawyers lead the big law firms and in uh, engineering, the engineers lead large, even international engineering firms with multiple business groups, but in healthcare, 95% of healthcare systems and hospitals are led by people with business backgrounds and only 5% of healthcare systems and hospitals are led by physicians. So you end up with people who are the experts in the core business of the enterprise and who have a deep tacit knowledge of the business and who have professional obligations they have to meet to patients and they end up being monitored and controlled by people that have a different value set, you know, have a business school mindset. And that can be untenable. So way back to your original question, uh, is it hard to change organizational culture? It is if there's this big disconnect between uh, the work, for instance, the work that physicians are doing and their professional values versus the work and the values of those uh, who occupy the C-suite. And do you find that uh, between physicians and those that occupy the C-suite, that it self-selects for different types of personalities? Those that want to be in the C-suite may have a different type of personality than those that wish to spend their life taking care of patients. Would you agree with that? Yes. So I think that uh, among physicians, if we just think about um, the reservoir of physician talent, there are definitely physicians who are uh, not interested uh, in raising their hand for a leadership role. And uh, I'm good with that as long as there are uh, enough physicians who see it as part of their MD or DO job description to make sure that the uh, profession is led by led by physicians. So I, I have a brother who's an engineer and he traveled all over the world 
he called it fixing large rotating equipment, but he fixed huge, uh, I guess, uh, uh, turbines in, you know, big power plants around mm -hmm. the world. And he had no interest ever in taking on a leadership role. And he was fantastic at what he did. And I just totally honor these fantastic physicians around me who are so skilled at being a physician. And we also need some subset of the best of the best physicians uh, to understand uh, leadership and raise their hand to be part of uh, the leadership of the profession. And I think that the more that physicians are able to see that they can make changes and influence the direction, and the more uh, you know, we become terrified at the direction that healthcare has been going, I think we'll see the best of the best also raising their hand to, to get involved in leadership and to help uh, really help everybody get out of this morass that we currently have in healthcare. You recently wrote an article for the AAPL. It was entitled How to Avoid Hiring a Narcissist. Why did you focus on narcissists? Uh, there are no doubt other problematic personalities at work in addition to narcissism, but let's let's focus on that. Yeah, there are definitely other problematic personalities. There's cranky people and there are people who are easily wounded. Everyone has to walk on eggshells around them and incompetent employees. And there are definitely other types of personality disorders that can be found at work. But the problem with the narcissist and the reason that I focus on uh, those traits is that uh, narcissists are attracted to high achievement fields and they tend to excel academically. And unfortunately, people that have a lot of narcissistic traits can absolutely knock your socks off during an interview. They can be confident and articulate and, uh, and really wow the interviewing team. So narcissists are overrepresented in high achievement fields like healthcare and the professions, but that's not the worst of the situation. The worst is that they often want to be the boss of you and me, and they feel completely entitled to that, uh, to that promotion. It's obvious to them that they are the most qualified. In fact, they uh, might believe that they're the only one qualified. And if they don't get the job, they're, they've been deeply wronged. And then you know the, the leaders and the team have to deal with uh, the uh, lawsuit or the claim that they file for discrimination or whatever other sorts of turmoil that uh, they can churn up. So. The difference between narcissists and the other personality disorders is that, well, one of the differences is that narcissists will show up in high achievement fields, unlike people, for instance, who have uh, borderline personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder, and they're much more overrepresented in prison populations, but not in high achievement fields. And then, uh, uh, and then, like I mentioned, the people with narcissistic traits will put their shoulder into every effort to become the boss of you and me. And, uh, and they're likely to, to denigrate or raise cane for anyone who thwarts them or threatens to take the spotlight off them. And I think all of this is especially dangerous in healthcare. When you think of nurses and doctors who 
very often have zero interest in becoming the chief of this or the director of that. And what's dangerous is the person who does want that role, the narcissist has been positioning himself or undermining the competition. So in healthcare, it can be, uh, if we're passive, it's like we fling the door open and make it easy for them to come in and and really poison the work environment. And because they can even do a lot of harm when they're in a subordinate position. And I've seen this a lot. They come in uh, and ingratiate themselves to the boss and stir up trouble and often even stir up trouble and then position themselves as the one who's able to understand and fix the situation that they created. And then they'll file complaints at work and um, you know, generally poison the work environment. And if they want a promotion, they might find a way uh, to ruin the reputation of that wonderful nursing supervisor who's been there for 20 years because they want the job and they uh, kiss up and kick down. And so that's why I focused on the you know, narcissistic traits in that article on recruiting, because you have to stop people with narcissistic traits at the door. Uh, you don't want them to be hired because once they're in the door, uh, you and your team will be, you know, going through hell until either you leave or uh, the person with the narcissistic traits leave. You've got my vote. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about how we uh, avoid um, hiring the the narcissist because your article had a fair amount of, of information about this and. I think it would be helpful to to our audience now if you could give some advice. Um, what would make big difference uh, for people who are recruiting physicians or or staff when trying to avoid a narcissist? Yes, I think that that's just a great question. I appreciate that. I I think physicians have to own the process of recruiting and selection, whether they're hiring staff or physicians, but certainly if they're hiring their physician colleagues. So it's having that mindset of whatever it takes, I'm going to be involved and I'm going to own the process. And often in a so-called uh, matrix organization, physicians are told, you just see the patients and we'll take care of the business. But anytime doctors are reassured in that way, don't worry about the business, we'll take care of it. My advice is, please you know, worry about the business. And this is especially true in recruiting and selection because you're gonna be married to these other physicians at work. And I distinguish between these two, uh, recruiting, which is really letting it be known that you're looking and selection is what I would call the marriage proposal. And sometimes arranged marriages work out, but I wouldn't want to count on it. So if physicians let someone in HR or someone in management do the hiring, then they're handing these decisions about their careers and their futures over to people who may have very different values and motivations. Uh, somebody that's in management in a you know, for-profit system might be looking for, uh, might have a profiteering mindset and be looking for somebody who's you know, wildly entrepreneurial. Maybe they made a zillion dollars at their previous uh, place and, uh, and alienated everybody. And now they're looking at, uh, you know, looking for a new role. Uh, and often in HR, 
we have to worry about whether they're looking at the wrong metrics when it comes to recruiting physicians. So often in HR, the recruiters are evaluated based on the time to hire. So the quicker the recruiters get someone into the organization, the better their statistics look. But when it comes to physicians, the time to hire is a terrible metric. To me, if a doctor's available right now, it's a red flag that at least has to be investigated. Uh, so I guess all this is to say that uh, it really matters to own the process. And, and there's a corollary there. One of the reasons to own the process is so that you can make sure references are checked. Uh, and when I speak and write about selection, I describe three things that will transform the process. One is owning the selection process. And that can even mean creating an excellent process, maybe creating a cultural fit interviewing team and finding the very best people to uh, take on the uh, interviewing or the reference checking, but owning the process, making sure that it meets your standards and then checking references. And that's a topic that balloons out into a huge discussion. And then uh, the third thing is mustering up as much tenacity because you'll need that because of all the barriers. And uh, Michael, I suspect that people who are listening to your podcast are probably saying, well, we can't take over the recruiting and I don't have any time to be that involved in uh, you know, recruiting and selection and HR doesn't include us in the interviewing and legal says we can't do any reference checking. And I call all of that the can't, can't, can't response. Because yes, you can and you have to, and this is why you need tenacity uh, in order to recruit and select the best docs. And if physicians are truly disallowed somehow from involvement in selecting other physicians, it's time to look for a different role because this would just be the tip of the lack of autonomy iceberg. And uh, from what I've observed, most managers don't understand the business implications of the hiring process, whether it's done really well or very poorly. There is nothing more transformational to an organization than hiring well. And I think that uh, so often we see that organizations throw away money uh, with flawed hiring practices and uh, mishires can just be so damaging. But when you get an organization that has an approach where it's like institutionalized mishiring, it is phenomenally costly and costly from both a cultural and a financial perspective. You certainly gave some some good advice there on on how to go about hiring, but I'd like to look at the other side of the of the coin about what people are doing incorrectly or what they do what they do wrong. Um, because I think that that's also helpful in the process, right? Not only what we should be doing, but what we should be avoiding. And maybe you could take a, a moment to, to talk about um, misses or errors in, in that category. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. And this ties into my last few comments. The biggest thing people consistently get wrong, I'd say year in and year out, is relying on the interview instead of relying on references to make a decision. The majority of the work of the selection process needs to be poured into getting references that will predict the candidate's behavior. So very skilled behavioral or situational interviewing might give you this little snapshot into past behavior, 
but the right references will give you this full color video uh, about past behavior. So my rule of thumb when it comes to making a decision about a hire is to only use the interview to rule people out. Don't use it to rule them in. I mean, if they're in the middle of the interview and they're arrogant or they reveal incompetence uh, in the interview, you should rule them out finish up the interview respectfully and all that, of course, but uh, it's fine to say, uh, based on that, I'm, I'm not gonna hire this person, but never rule them in or actually choose them based on the interview. Remember we were talking earlier about how somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder can knock your socks off during the interview. So the interview is not reliable for making an affirmative hiring decision it's worth doing for other reasons, but not for making that decision. So, so what you need is references. And um, the way I define references is uh, it's not those three names provided by the candidate. Uh, it's not those three letters that they bring along with them. A reference is someone who is a proxy for me, who shares my interests, not someone who shares the candidate's interest in getting hired because the Candidate's reference could be someone who's just dying to get rid of them and who would sell, yeah, who would sell their soul in a reference uh, letter or phone call if it means that they can run the person off. So to make this happen, what, you know, what I need is a release of information. It's something that you're going to be very familiar with, but the release of information needs to be something that the candidate signs that states that I can talk to everyone and their dog about whether, you know, whatever I want regarding the candidate's performance and behavior. And I unofficially call it the everyone and their dog release. And then, it, and then it's time to go to work and identify reliable references. And honestly, that's not very hard in the relatively small world of medicine. Uh, you can uh, generally fairly easily find somebody that knows somebody that you can trust who uh, knows something about this candidate or has been involved in their residency program or their medical school or their last place of work. And of course, there's all the things that people have to be apprised of regarding confidentiality and other cautions that they have to have to take. And if we went into all these issues, we'd probably need a five-part uh, podcast to cover all of it. Um, but I think one encouraging thing, I'll just say one last thing, one encouraging thing to remember is when you do have a fantastic candidate, everybody wants to talk to you about that person and tell you how you'll be lucky if you can nab the candidate and how much they wish that she would, you know, that she would stay. And so when you have somebody who um, is uh, just the, you can't quite nail down the references. They don't call you back and, you know, they're evasive. I think it's really important to pay attention to that. And remember that great candidates have all kinds of people that want to rave about them. Um, so what people tend to get wrong, I would, I would say is uh, using the interview to make the hiring decision when really they need to be using references. Fabulous advice. And when you mentioned the, um, the, the, the reference that was so hoping that you would hire away his or her problem, I'm sure that every one of our audience members had a mental image of their, uh, a bane of their existence um, it come, come to mind. So we've, we've all had that, uh, that thought. We've gotten to the point in the interview 
Patty, where we where we have to have to mention it, it seems unfortunately still obligatory to to bring up COVID nineteen, and certainly there's been horrendous impact of the pandemic on people everywhere and on people who certainly work in in the healthcare industry. What have you noticed about physician leadership during this uh, time of the coronavirus uh, crisis? Yeah, well, I agree with you, uh, Michael, that the the big headline is the devastation created by the pandemic and the trauma that is just so huge on so many levels for physicians and for other healthcare workers. Uh, And I think it's important to acknowledge and to recognize how physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers have risen to their leadership roles. And physician leadership has been so important. I think physicians have earned the trust that people put in them. Uh, And uh, on the other hand, some organizational leaders have been pretty vile in the middle of all this furloughing nurses while, you know, collecting their own bonuses and that kind of thing. I think about very early on the high profile firing of Dr. Ming Lin in Portland, and he was fired for publicly drawing attention to the desperate need that his staff had for uh, PPE and uh, the hospital administrators and the venture capitalist company that owns the ED group were denying involvement in Dr. You know, Lin's firing and they were pointing fingers at each other and blaming each other. And I think Dr. Lin was really this uh, you know, early, uh, early leader, but early warning sign of, of things to come. And he took a stand and was really such a, a symbol of physicians speaking up on behalf of others. I mean, he was speaking up, asking for personal protective equipment for his uh, emergency department staff. Um, other examples of physician leadership, I have a couple of physician clients and they uh, uh, live and work in, in different states, but each of them created and ran the command centers for their big healthcare systems. and. Both of these physician leaders were remarkably effective and inspiring. And I thought it was so interesting because they were both totally energized by the teamwork, the hard work, and the outcomes that they were able uh, to create. And I I know of a neurologist also who was doing uh, remote interoperative monitoring. And that means that basically Uh, He was sitting in front of computers all day and monitoring surgeries around the country remotely. And he got called up by the reserves and he went from being in front of, you know, a bank of computers to being in charge of a portable COVID ICU in a big hospital system on the East coast. So he was in charge of this incredibly complex situation that was completely different from the work that he'd been doing. And I think he was inspired. I mean, certainly he was inspiring, but uh, there is something so energizing about when physicians uh, uh, step into these leadership roles and take it on. I mean, they're in their element. And and if I can tell you one, one other uh, physician leadership story. Please. Uh, yeah. Several months ago, I was talking to an ER resident, Dr. Rami Webby. He's got a podcast And he mentioned to me that he was doing his residency at UMass Memorial in Boston. And I thought I recognized the name of that system because I had read about a hospital system where the CEO and his wife 
they're both physicians, had donated their entire salaries to uh, an employee COVID fund for the duration of the pandemic. And I was talking with Dr. Webby. I asked him, you know, is Dr. Eric Dixon the CEO of your system? Is, uh, do I have that right? And he said, yeah. He said, Dr. Dixon was a great guy, a great physician, which made it sound like he knew him personally. And I asked him and he said, yeah, he knew him personally. Just before he'd gotten on the phone call with me, he had worked a shift with Dr. Dixon. Dr. Dixon is an ER doctor. And even though he oversees you know, multiple hospitals, he's the system CEO, he had been uh, at the attending physician that day in a COVID unit. And wow. I love that story. You know, as if donating their income to the employees wasn't remarkable enough. And here you've got the system CEO doing these emergency department shifts alongside of a resident. And to me, that just gives a picture of how incomparably inspiring a superb physician leader can be. And it's, and it's easy to understand how physician leaders come about their extensive tacit knowledge and their hands-on understanding of healthcare. And, and so much of that is what allows physician leaders to be effective. Absolutely. Leading from the front um, in, in multiple ways. Very impressive. So tell me, what's the first thing you think of uh, or that you try to assess when you want to improve a team or an organization's culture? Yeah, I want to size up the level of threat in the organization when I'm uh, trying to figure out uh, the, the culture and what's going on here. Are people in a state of safety and reward where they can do their best work and their best thinking? Or are people in a threat state, you know, in a, a fight, flight, or free state where their best thinking is impaired? Uh, this is going to be important, whether it's a payroll company or a turkey plant or a hospital, but in healthcare, it's such high stakes you know, for the patients, but also for the physicians and nurses and technicians, they have to be able to think clearly to access their prefrontal cortex, which can get hijacked. Uh, it can be unavailable uh, to them to, to access their best thinking if they're in a threatening environment, if it's punitive or toxic. And I developed an acronym to gauge the level of threat and safety. And the acronym is CARB, C-A-R-B, which stands for clarity, autonomy, respect, and belonging. And these are four interpersonal motivators that are of, to me, of critical importance at work. And with any workplace interpersonal interaction, we will end up somewhere on this continuum between threat on the one hand and uh, safety or reward on the other with regard to these four interpersonal motivators. And I call them interpersonal motivators because depending on the interaction, you're gonna be motivated to move uh, toward the situation or person. Uh, in other words, it represents safety or reward over here, or you'll be motiv motivated to move away from the situation or the person because it represents a threat. So uh, in CARB, the first is clarity. So people need to know uh, what's expected of them, what's gonna happen next, how will I be evaluated? And a lack of clarity will create this threat state with all the attendant physiologic threat responses, adrenaline and cortisol getting released and that whole cascade. 
And then autonomy is, is um, the A of CARB. And we all need some control or at least choices in our lives. And physicians need professional autonomy to meet our professional and ethical obligations to patients. And uh, I would put this point, I guess, in bold neon, a physician's level of autonomy must be commensurate with our level of responsibility. And the lack of autonomy is one of the biggest contributors to burnout and to the moral injury that we hear about for physicians. And respect is the third element. Am I being treated courteously and fairly? And one writer talked about respect being like oxygen. You don't pay much attention until it's gone. And then it's all you can think about. So that gives you a, a vivid picture of the threat we feel if we're treated disrespectfully. And then finally, belonging is the fourth element uh, of CARB. Do I belong here? Does someone have my back? Or am I gonna be voted off the island? Under, understood. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're approaching the end of this, this interview, but I certainly wanted to ask you how, um, how firms in, interact with, with your consulting uh, business. How, how do you work with, with healthcare providers? Can you give us kind of a 30,000 foot view? Yes, absolutely. So my firm is called uh, Fake Consulting and we work with organizations uh, on site and now uh, more than ever virtually in three different ways. We consult with leadership teams to help them create healthy organizational cultures. And we coach and teach physicians and healthcare leaders and we speak to audiences on topics like these areas that we've discussed today. Excellent. Well, Dr. Faith, thank you so much for being a guest on Sound Practice. Uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Patty Fay of Fay Consulting. A link to Dr. Fay's website will be included in the show notes. And I thank you so much for your time. Oh, Michael, thank you so much. This has just been great. I, I really appreciate having a chance to be on your podcast. My pleasure. Mike, Dr. Faye had some terrific ideas, loved that interview. And I thought her discussion about hiring a narcissist was particularly interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that one, uh, Tothi. I think that Dr. Faye's discussion of the value of references over the interviewing process was, was spot on as well. Very interesting. Well, but unfortunately, Mike, we are out of time in this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Dr. Patty Fay. If you did, we'd love it if you would consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We sure would uh, like that. And if you would like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, we welcome that as well. And you may do that by emailing us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. And please join us next time on Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. 
Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin went from Kapow.